0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Chronicles 26, verses 3 through 8 and verse 15. Uh, this is found on page 377 of your Pew Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take home that one as a gift from us. This is Second Chronicles 26, verses 3 through 8. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper." He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbaal, and against the Maonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong." In Jerusalem, he made machines, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Well, yeah, you may be seated. We're so glad that you're here this morning with us. Thanks for uh, making time uh, to join us this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And again, we're really glad to have you here at the Brookside Campus. And as we continue worshiping together this morning, I want to pause to pray as we look into this passage in the life of Isaiah. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have recorded these events for us thank you for the human authors that you inspired by your holy spirit to communicate these words to us we thank you for the men and women throughout the history of the church who preserved and translated these words words of life to us we ask now that your spirit the holy spirit would be present making them live in our lives it's in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. In 2001, Harvard or actually uh, Stanford—I don't want to get those two confused—for those, uh, Stanford business professor uh, Jim Collins published a book that would just radically uh, transform and uh, and have a deep influence on organizational leadership uh, in both nonprofit and for-profit sectors. And when uh, he published *Good to Great*, uh, this is still 20 years plus years later is one of the most influential kind of business organizational leadership books that has that's been written. But less than a decade after Collins wrote the book, it was 2008. In three of the companies that he profiled in the book, and the book was kind of asking the question, why do some companies make the the leap that he says, the leap from good to great? And he profiled 11 different companies. Three of those 11 companies were in deep trouble. Three of the companies that were on his list of great companies. uh, It was, again, 2008. Two of those companies were Wells Fargo and Fannie Mae. And they were deeply embroiled in the Great Recession, the financial crisis, the subprime lending, all of that. And another one was the electronics store, Circuit City, which is no longer even in existence. And so Collins wrote a second book asking the question, what in the world happened why, why did these companies end up that way? Because Circuit City, at, kind of at its peak when it was going out of business in, in March of 2009, it closed all of its 150 plus stores, 30,000 people, it's estimated, lost their jobs in that. So what happened well, Collins wrote a follow-up book called How the Mighty Fall, and in that book he identified uh, th- kind of three key factors that led to the decline of these companies. The first was a, what he called a hubris born of success, that there's this kind of this hubris that, that w- we can't do anything wrong, that whatever we do, it just seems to work, things keep going. There's a hubris born of success. The, the second thing that he points out he names as this kind of undisciplined pursuit of more. And the undisciplined part, that that was key. Not just that they wanted to grow, they wanted to expand, that wasn't necessarily bad, but it was this undisciplined pursuit of more. And the third thing he pointed out was it was the denial of risk and peril. Again, kind of the sense, we we can do whatever, we can take whatever risk, and it's just going to work. But long before Wells Fargo and Fannie Mae were making lots of subprime loans, and long before, 3,000 plus years before Circuit City was closing its doors, we find a story in Scripture of another leader, of, of another nation who is following a similar predictable story of how the mighty fall. And we're continuing in our series today in, in the Forgotten Family series, we're, we're looking at different, more obscure people in the Bible. Probably when you heard, uh, you know, Amanda say turn to Second Chronicles, you probably knew, yes, this is going to be a Forgotten Family member uh, today. Um, probably you don't spend a lot of time reading Second Chronicles. Maybe, maybe some of you out there do. I don't spend a lot of time reading Second Chronicles. And First and Second Chronicles, just like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. This wasn't like the first one was so good they made the sequel. Um, second Chronicles, just the, the reason we have those books divided up is it's just like two volumes. When they originally wrote it, it was all in one scroll, and they translated it into Greek. It took up more space. So you needed two scrolls. So now we have First. So it's just continuation of the same same story. First and Second. Um, in, in that. And when we turn to that passage, and I invite you to do that today, to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's on, just a reminder, page 377 in the Pew Bible, if it's been a while since you've turned to 2 Chronicles. Um, page 377. I invite you to look there, and there we find a ruler, a young political leader, who makes the leap from good to great. His name is Uzziah. His name is Uzziah, And he becomes king when he's just 16 years old. His dad had been captured and imprisoned in kind of a foolhardy uh, battle, war venture that he had taken on. And so now at age 16, Uzziah finds himself in the role of king. This is chapter 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and they made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Now, if you're a student here this morning... uh, Imagine, be, maybe, maybe you're just about to turn 16, maybe you just turned 16, maybe, maybe you're longing for the day when you turn 16, but just imagine at that age of 16 that you are ruling an entire kingdom. I mean, Uzziah, who if he were alive today, would, would barely be able to get his driver's license, is handed the keys to an entire kingdom to lead. And I can only imagine what he must be feeling. And there's lots of expectations. You know, yeah, Uzziah, he's a good kid, but will he be a great leader? And what we discover in verses 4 and 5 is, is that he is. I mean, you look at verse 4, and the Lord, and, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Again, he he's young, he's inexperienced, he's weak, he's vulnerable, right? Can you imagine stepping in this role? You're 16 years old. There's probably all these other people who who wish that they could have that role, could influence you. And in that place, in his weakness, in his vulnerability, he turns to God for help. So he, he seeks God. And he also seeks out this counsel from, from a wise, uh, wise counselor, wise leader named Zechariah. Now, there's a number of different Zechariahs in the Bible. There's a, a book called Zechariah. It's not the same Zechariah. There's a New Testament character, Zechariah. This is a d- different Zechariah. This is all we know about this Zechariah. But he's, he's a faithful advisor and counselor to this young king. And specifically what the passage uh, tells us that Zechariah instructed Uzziah in is, is the fear of God. Now I just want to pause for a moment and kind of take it aside because the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, it's one of, those, uh, it's one of the most foundational kind of concepts, truths in the scripture if we want to relate to God rightly, but it's also the one that I think is most difficult to understand, most tricky to understand. Are we, are we supposed to be afraid of God? How does that relate to his love and his mercy? Um, and I, I wish we had time. We don't have time to go deep into that this morning, but if you want to kind of wrestle with what does it mean to fear God, uh, the book Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves is a fantastic book. It's, it just came out this past year. Uh, it's a wonderful book. In that book, Michael Reeves says this. I, I think this is so helpful. Take a look here. He says, the true fear of God is true love for God to find it is the right response to God's full ord revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. Fear not only defines our love for God and our joy in God, it also prompts us to trust in God. And that's exactly what Uzziah does. He, he trusts in God and he, and he moves from good to great. In fact, if you read on, and we read a, a portion of this, I'm not going to read all of it, but verses 6 through 15 of chapter 26 are just a catalog of all the things that Uzziah accomplishes with God's help. He has military victory. He secures sort of the the the, the borders. There's these various enemies who are trying to attack, and, and he has... Military victory after military victory strengthens those. We, we read about his building projects in Jerusalem, how he strengthens uh, the, the battle, kind of the, the walls, and prepares for battle with the latest kind of technical innovations. And not only that, too, but he brings about this new kind of love for agricultural and farming. He says he loves the soil. There's all of this kind of farming activity. This is uh, the, the kingdom is as secure and as prosperous as it's been in a long time. And the author wants to make two things really clear to us. One, is that all of that success is from God. It is because Uzziah is helped by God that he has this success. And two, that as a result of this success, that Uzziah becomes really well-known. His fame spreads all over kind of that, that known world at that time. You, you see this in, in verses six or 7 and 8. Verse 7 begins, and God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians and and all these battles. Then at the end of verse 8, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he had become very strong. And it's the same theme down in verse 15 at the end. It says, and his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. His fame spread far. He was marvelously helped till he was strong. Now you get the first hint in the story at the end of verse 15 that maybe not everything is quite right. And you get it in this language of till he was marvelously strong. Till he was marvelously strong. Now at this point, we, we don't know exactly, but you know he began reigning at age 16. You read through all that is unfolded in verses 6 through 15, this kind of catalog of everything. He's, he's probably a little bit later on in life now, maybe his 40s and his 50s. He's grown strong. He's famous. He's well known. Again, the the kingdom, his his rule has never been more secure, more prosperous. And the reality is though that fame and power, they have a power, an ability to obscure what's happening in our hearts sometimes. And for Uzziah, there is a pride that begins to grow. Begins to grow undetected in his heart. It grows like a weed that begins to choke out spiritual life from his soul. Look at verse 16. This is where the whole story turns. And here's the thing. As the pride starts to grow, this so what we see unfold in verses 16, 17, 18 on down, is that he begins to push against boundaries, he begins to push against limits, he begins to take on things that are not his to take on, and it has a devastating effect. Verse 16, take a look. But when he was strong, he Uzziah grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. It will bring you no honor the lord what's happening here in this moment because for most of us this is so far like culturally religiously removed it's kind of like okay clearly he's done something wrong here but i don't necessarily feel the force of what this is and and in the history of god working with the people of israel he had revealed to them there's these different kind of roles and offices to be had so there was the role of the king but there was also this very distinct role this is from the time of 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 Moses and Aaron as they're leaving the Egypt uh, Egypt, and, and going into the wilderness, and, and God eventually sets up all this, but that there's a specific role for this group of people who are the priests, that they serve in the temple, they represent God to the people, the people to God, they have a very defined role, and the king or no, and anyone else is not allowed to play that role. But here's the thing. Power, fame, pride, it hates the idea of any limitation, any boundary being placed on it. And, and it's almost as if Uzziah is saying, you know, there, there's this thing that, that I can't have that I want. That I've achieved all this other stuff, but there's, now there's this other thing that I need. It's almost as if I can't have it. And so he takes on and steps into this role that is not his. I, the only Again, it's hard because in this context, the, the political and the religious are so deeply intertwined, they, they, they wouldn't have even kind of had a separate category for this is a religious thing, this is a political thing, it all is religious, it's all um, wrapped up. But even in our context today, I think the closest analogy I could try to think of is like, it would be like the president going to the Supreme Court and saying, "Now I also want to be the chief justice as well, or vice versa, the, the chief justice shows up in the, in the Oval Office and says, I'm now declaring myself president to you. There's these distinct roles that have been set up in the government and, and now there's this, this crossing of this boundary. And Uzziah has this chance because the priests, to their credit, they really stand up against him. Which, I mean, you got an angry, all-powerful kind of king here in this moment. They say they're doing this at the peril of their lives, potentially, but they walk in, Amaziah, these 80 other priests, and they say, Uzziah, you cannot do this. This is not your place to be. This is not your role to play. They warn him. They give him a chance to turn back. But pride does not respond well to confrontation. Does not respond well to being told no. And so in anger and defiance, Uzziah goes forward, enemy. anyway, you look down at verse 19, then Uzziah was angry, now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy, this kind of skin disease, breaks out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried out because the Lord had struck him. And then verse 21, we see the sad move from good to great to gone. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household governing the people of the land. Now, our translations bring this across as leprosy. This is probably not the, the modern disease that we call leprosy, but he has some kind of skin condition, ailment that immediately breaks out. It, it's almost the opposite of a miracle of healing. It's a miracle of judgment that God spontaneously and kind of miraculously intervenes in this moment and something dramatic happens. It, it, it reminds me of Oscar Wilde's powerful and haunting book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Have you ever read that story? Maybe seen a film adaptation of it? It tells the story of this, this, kind of this beautiful young socialite, and, and he's got all, all, kind of all this ahead of him, and, and he has a, a painting made of him, kind of capturing him in all of, all of his youth and beauty and splendor. And, and he makes this wish that, that he would always look like that. That no matter what, that, that he could always stay young and beautiful, no matter how, how much of evil or how much awful things he committed or how many excess of food and drink and sexuality, all that, that, that he could have all of that and, and still remain un, unafflicted, unchanged. And in the story that he gets his wish, the painting Will show all of the marks and mars of all of his evil and his injustice and his excess, but he will res- remain young, youthful, beautiful. And you know, so the, the story goes on and he does, he goes on to commit to all these evil things and murders and all this excess, and yet he remains unchanged. He looks as good and young, youthful as forever, all the while the painting hidden away grows uglier and darker more distorted in 1943 MGM studios uh, commissioned Chicago artist Ivan Albright to paint for their film adaptation of the picture of Dorian Gray the picture at the end of the movie so this is this is Dorian Gray the portrait of him of, of of all the the kind of distortion and and mutilation of all this life that he's lived and that 1943 film adaptation is all in black and white except for the final scene where the picture is revealed of what Dorian Gray actually looks like. And it's shown in Technicolor. And this is the painting. It's still actually on display. You can find it in uh, the, the Art Institute in Chicago. This is what happens to Uzziah. It's, it's a picture of Dorian Gray moment. Where in an instant, what was kind of true of Uzziah and his pride and his arrogance and his his defying of God, what was true of him internally and spiritually is kind of made external and physical in a moment. You can take that down now. We probably don't need to meditate on that picture for too much longer. But that's what happens to Uzziah. What's internal and spiritual is, in this moment, kind of miraculously made external and physical. Uh, pride is a, is a spiritual uncleanness to it. God brings about a physical uncleanness as a warning, as a reality. And the problem in this moment is this transcending of these limits, these boundaries, right? Because if there's one thing that pride and fame can't stand, it's boundaries, it's limits. Once wants more. And this is sort of Uzziah's garden moment. We all have these garden moments in our lives. The same choice that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Will we choose to define good and bad for ourselves? Or will we accept God's good rules and limitations and design? And Uzziah, he, he Chooses, just like his first parents, just like our first parents so long ago, to define good and bad on his own, to take what was not rightfully his to have. And his fall is spectacular. You know, his story begins and, and we're reading it and we think, is this the moment? The author set it up this way. So you get to verse 16, you think maybe he last is the other king like David. There's this promise that you know, David, the great king, you, know, you had Saul who was kind of a, a mess and then you get David and he's kind of this, this pattern of what a true king is supposed to be like and, and yet even he had some problems that maybe, maybe Uzziah's the one who's really gonna be this true king and until you get to verse 15, it seems like, wow, he is. But then you realize he's just like David, just like Solomon, just like his father and his grandfather who started so well, but then they end up following the same path that so many had, of the mighty falling. And and they end up just like the kings of the nations that they were supposed to be distinct from. They end up, this is just like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, just like the king of Tyre, leaders that God humbled spectacularly. And Uzziah is humbled as well. Which all leads us to, to maybe a surprising but faithful observation this morning about Uzziah's life. And it's this that success is more dangerous to our souls than failure. Success is more dangerous to our souls than failure. And if you only write down one thing, if you only take one thing away, I'd want, I'd just re- please remember that from Isaiah's story, that success is more dangerous than failure. Why? Because success is the breeding ground for undetected pride. And this is not to say that failure is a good thing, that we ought to go out looking for failure. But here's the difference. Because failure has its whole own set of problems that go along with it right if you if you have sustained failure in your life like that can lead to, de- to depression and despair and and sort of soothing the, over that pain and depression and despair with things like drugs and alcohol and shopping and pornography and all all this kinds of stuff right like success has this pro- problem but i mean failure is not good either but here's the difference when you're in that place of experiencing failure you, you aren't under the illusion that things are going well that you have it all together that you're in control, right? I mean, if you're in a place of, of failing one thing after another, and, and you're struggling with addiction and all this stuff, you, you don't, like, wake up each and you like, ah, things are actually pretty good. No, you, you know, you recognize, I, I need help, I'm weak, I'm vulnerable. It reminded me of a, a kind of a snarky greeting card I saw in a store the other day. I got a picture of it here. Um, it says, it says this, it says, I I would say that I'm absolutely crushing it at life, minus not having very much money and constantly making bad choices. <laughs> but when you're in that place, like, you, you, like pride's not growing, right? You, you understand, like this, things are not going well. But when you're in seasons of great success, it is so easy to not see pride growing It doesn't say when Uzziah was was weak and vulnerable he grew proud to his destruction. No, it was when he became strong that he grew proud to his destruction. Pride blinds you to even its own presence in your life. This is the tricky thing about it. In fact, actually, Jim Collins, in his analysis of all this, he, he points this out in How the Mighty Fall as he looked at these companies. Take a look at this, what he says. He says, institutions can be sick on the inside and yet still look strong on the outside. Decline can sneak up on you and then seemingly all of a sudden you're in big trouble. The wisdom that Collins distills there, Second Chronicles has for us 3,000 years before Collins. And pride is that common ingredient in any story of the mighty falling. Whether it's Circuit City, or Adam and Eve, or us. Pride is the common ingredient. And few people, I think, have written as articulately and as insightfully about this as as C.S. Lewis. He writes in Mere Christian, he has a whole section on pride. It's probably one of the best parts of that book. He says this, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. Isn't that true? and of which hardly any people except Christians imagine they are guilty themselves. According to Christian teachers, the essential bite, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is pride, it is the absolute, it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It's why it is the essential evil. It's this anti-God state of mind. It cannot bear limits. It cannot bear not being the center. So as we reflect briefly here at the end on this story of Uzziah's life, I, I want to point out three insights about how pride grows in the midst of Uzziah's success. It ends up being so much dangerous, more dangerous to him than failure. And, and what we're going to see is that pride forgets, pride ignores, and pride rejects the very first thing that we see in Uzziah's story is that pride forgets God. And this is what happens before any of the other stuff in his story unfolds. Pride forgets God. Because the author is so clear that it's when Uzziah grows in fame and in power that he begins to forget God. But also, the author could not be more clear in in this brief narrative in pointing out again and again that it is God who has helped him to get to where he is. I love the line in verse 15. He had all this because he had been marvelously helped by God. The only reason that he has gained these places of fame and influence and power and success is because he has been marvelously helped by God. Now, I don't think most of us here are kings who are ruling over empires. But all of us, we're here a beating heart in our chest, breath in our lungs, and clothes on our backs, and, and food in our bodies. We have all, friends, been marvelously helped. Even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, even if you have questions about the existence of God, I think we can all acknowledge at one level that because of our, our parents, the opportunities that we're given, or the neighborhood that we were born in, or whatever it might be, that we have all been marvelously helped by God. And yet we are so quick, how often do we, do I, fail to give thanks and give gratitude for even those most basic things, a place to live, clothes to wear. How easy it is to functionally live a life that says, I'm self-sufficient. That, that, I, that I made this, that, that I'm self-made, that this is all a result of, of, just, of just me doing it, working. We've all been marvelously... Helped. Here's the thing, pride is always God forgetful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler, eventually lost his life trying to defeat Hitler. And he wrote a book on temptation, and he, and he points out that in the moments of temptation, there's always a God forgetfulness. Look, look at what he writes here. He says, it makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, our love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, he means at the moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. How true. I mean, that that rings really true in my own experience. Not a a hatred of God in those moments of temptation, but God just doesn't even enter our minds. There's a God forgetfulness in those moments of temptation. So I wonder as you look back in your life, where are the moments when when God has seemed the most absent, the most unreal? maybe, Maybe it's when you go into work. It's just maybe work in a place that just feels like a really godless place. I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of competition or even practices that aren't, you know, sort of the most ethical. And you you just feel like in that place, like if I'm going to make it here, I just kind of got to set this this God thing to the side and I just got to survive there. Uh, or maybe it's in, in in parenting or maybe it's in an argument with your spouse or, or maybe it's in the classroom at school or or when you when you're with a particular group of friends on the weekends or i i don't know what when that space is but rather in the future than than being condemning and shaming of yourself after a moment of, of giving into some kind of temptation would you just be curious about when when in the progression of all that when did i start to forget god When did you start to seem unreal, and begin to learn from those moments? Where, where are those moments when I'm inclined to start forgetting? Because when God is most unreal to us, it, it leads to the second thing that that pride does, and that is that pride ignores limits. Because when we begin to forget God, we begin to ignore our limitations that we have been created with. Again, the most fundamental limitation that we have is that we are creatures. This is the fundamental thing that the Christians say is true about, the, about reality, that there are creatures and there is a creator, that, that there is a God, and that we are not Him. But when we begin to forget that God exists functionally in the moment, we also begin to transcend limits, push against boundaries Again, Uzziah had been entrusted with so much, he'd been given so much, he'd been helped so much, and yet it wasn't enough, because it never is for pride. Pride never is going to have enough. It's never going to be satisfied. And so he pushes past, pushes against boundaries, transcends lines that he was never meant to. But it seems comprehensible, because God becomes unreal in those moments. And he slams himself against those limits again and again. And it's hard because pride can never rest in the goodness of being a creature. It can never rest in the goodness of saying, you know what, at the end of the day, like, I I don't have to be sovereign, I don't have to be in control. God has that role. It always is striving, pushing. So I wonder what limits are you chafing against? I think one of the, the big ones for us is just the limitation of time. Like we 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 are not timeless infinite. We we all have 24 hours a day. We all have 7 days in a week. And yet how many times do we try to transcend that limit by moving faster, by cramming one more thing in? Which which often then leads us to ignore or blow past a second limitation that we have, which is the limitation I need for sleep, that we're creatures who, who aren't able to just stay awake all the time. We need rest. We need time off. We need seasons of withdrawal, but we tend to ignore those limitations culturally often and say, if I can just wake up a little bit earlier, maybe if I can stay up a little bit later, I can squeeze one more thing in. And sometimes our, maybe another big limit I feel like we ignore is just financial limitations. That we're, we're not satisfied with, with the, the income that God has provided for us in this moment, in this season. And so we, we want to transcend, we don't, and we just think if we can get a little bit more, then, then we would be happy. And so we transgress that limitation of, of our salary, of what's in our checking account, and we take on debt, things we can't afford which then often perpetua- perpetuates this vicious cycle because now it's like, well, now I need to work more. I need to get a second job, which means I don't sleep. I don't rest enough. And here's the thing. Ultimately, we don't break those limitations. We end up breaking ourselves as we just continually to run into them. You kind of push them like a, like a rubber band, but they bounce you back because you know, if you, you don't sleep long enough, you start getting sick, you get a cold, you get a sinus infection. Not that I, I've experienced that personally, but I hear that can happen if you don't sleep enough right? You end up in debt. You end up haggard and rushing. We break ourselves on the limitations. And then the third, final thing here is that pride also rejects correction. Because pride, it not only forgets, it ignores and it rejects. Pride cannot see, and this is, I think, the hallmark of pride. Pride cannot see how it could possibly be wrong and it angrily rejects even the most loving even the most gentle even the most winsome suggestion that it might need to change that it might need to grow that it that it might not see everything clearly that it that it might have some way it could be better grow it just can't even handle it can't conceive that it could possibly be wrong the slightest suggestion that there might be need of an attitude adjustment and I, I found myself smack dab in the middle of that very place uh, a week ago Saturday. We, were, we just moved into this new house not long ago, and we were, doing, we were doing a bunch of projects and had this project on the list I thought was just going to take a few, you know, maybe a half hour, hour, we'll tear out this thing, and then we'll be good to move some stuff into that space, and it just ended up taking way longer. And I don't know why, it wasn't her fault, but I ended up just kind of upset at Rachel because she had put the project on the list it's taking longer and it's messing up my plan for what I wanted to do that day. And I was just in a yucky mood. And Rachel, in, in true, like, this, there was no snark, no gentle, you know, no, no, she just gently and kindly and just said, You're actually like, you're ruining, Bill, you're ruining your own day. Like, you could be enjoying a nice day with your family. It's like, this it is what it is. Like, this project didn't go how we thought it was going to go. And I just, I wouldn't, I mean, I knew she was right, but I just, I, I couldn't hear it. I didn't want to hear it so i kind of went off to the hardware store to get more drywall patch and more whatever and keep doing this thing and i just wanted to stay in that place pride can't hear correction so i just wonder who do you whose voice do you need to hear who is god in his love and his mercy and his kindness to you, who has God placed into your life? It might be someone you don't even like. Actually, it's probably somebody that, at least you don't like this part about them, but, but they've called you to be better or pointed things out that need to change. Maybe it's a friend. It's a counselor, a boss, a pastor, a parent, a child. Parents, you could ever be that our children have something to say? Do we need to hear? Him? Friends, it's not, it was too late for Uzziah. Pride had taken so much, he was so blinded, he couldn't see it. But it's not too late for you. To listen to those voices that God is in his love and his mercy and his care for you has placed in your life. To tell you things you probably don't want to hear, but that you need to hear. Now there's one. One practice of resistance as we close here that can really help us fight against the pride that so quickly grows. And that practice of resistance is this it's this weekly gathering for worship that you're in right now. There are a few things more powerful in fighting against pride than gathering like this once a week to worship God. Because when we do this, when we come together in this space, well, first of all, we're just reminding ourselves that yes, God exists. In a world and with hearts where we are so often God-forgetful, the practice of gathering with other people who can remind us in song, who can remind us in, in teaching the scriptures and confession that God exists, that he's real, that he is present, that he's here, that he is the most real, real thing that there is, helps us fight against pride's god God-forgetfulness it also is a place where we're wonderfully and joyfully reminded of our limitations as creatures and that we don't have to be creator we don't have to run it all we don't have to be in charge of it all we don't have to to carry the weight of the world that that god actually is doing that himself and he never meant for you i mean so much worry and fear and anxiety yes there are there are kind of clinical expressions of those but so much like kind of the everyday nature of that comes from us just trying to control and carry things that we were never meant to or never could carry or control. And when we gather here in this space, we can, we can sing songs like, holy is the Lord. We can remind ourselves that God is the one in charge. He's not asked us to carry those things and we don't need to. And it's a place where, again, in song and confession and teaching, that we can, we can hear words of correction. We can hear words of encouragement to, to deepen, to grow, to change. And it's where we can hear, friends, the good news. The good news that we don't have to prove ourselves. Pride always has something to prove what happens with Uzziah, he tries to prove his own worth, he tries to be his own mediator. Again, the role of the priest was to go into the temple and to represent the people to God, and God to the people, to be this mediator, and he says, I'm going to do that for myself, essentially saying, I'm worth this, I am powerful enough, I'm worthy enough to do this, and we all, we don't try to burn incense in a temple, typically, but we still do the same things. We try to say, I I can be my own mediator, God, I am good enough, I am worthy of your love, I am worthy of of success of promotion, of having a spouse, of having whatever it might be, we're constantly trying to prove that we're worthy and it won't work and it will crush us. but we have someone, the true priest who's also the true king and Jesus, these things unite all together in one who gave his life for us, who reveals our infinite worth not because of anything. That we have done, but because we're made in his image and he loves us and he gave his life for us and we are worthy and we don't have to prove, we don't have to strive anymore. And that united to Jesus by faith, we are ushered into the very presence of God and by the Holy Spirit, God is actually present in us. And as we delight in his presence, we joyfully And just with great, effusive praise are able to let go of all the pride and enjoy God for who He is. Because when we become self-forgetful, in the best sense of that, we're just able to enjoy God and our place as creature. It's what He has for us. Let's pray. Father, I am acutely aware in this moment I, just, I feel very vulnerable having just preached a message on pride and stated to everyone in this room that pride is blinding. So I pray for myself and, and everyone else that you would show us, be, be merciful, be gentle, gentle, Lord, we pray, but show us, show me the places where pride is pushing you away. Where it's infected our souls, where, where it's keeping us from enjoying you, where, where it's making us a miserable people to be around? Lord, would we be quick to hear those who would want to help us grow? And would you bring those people in so that we can enjoy you and let go of everything else that we're trying to prove? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our worth? our only boast, our only hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make these things true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.